0: Please remain standing for a moment while we pray. God in heaven, the books of kings tell us that the word of the Lord was rare in the land of Israel during those times. This is a phrase which resonates with our own moment in history. Indeed, in our own city and sometimes even in our own lives, we feel that your word is rare. Lord, there are those of us who are confused about who you are. There are many of us who feel far from you, Lord. And so today I pray that you would grant us an experience of your reality. I pray that you would enable each of us to hear your voice. We see greater connection with you. We ask that you would use your word to make yourself known to us, felt to us. Help us to love you as we go into the scripture. Amen. Please do take a seat. Modern day soap operas, maybe even Game of Thrones, I don't know, but certainly modern day soap operas have nothing on certain parts of the Old Testament. It was a dog-eat-dog world, and puppies didn't always make it. If you want stories of scandal and murder, political intrigue, backroom dealing, look no further. You're in the right place with the books of Kings. Yet these books are also places where we can see the good work of God. We get glimpses of it. It is, after all, only as the night gets darker that the stars get brighter. Today, this morning, we're launching into our summer sermon series called Shadowlands. We're entering into the book of 1 Kings within the Old Testament. For many of us, the Old Testament can seem quite foreign. Opening its pages can feel like traversing a type of literary time warp, venturing into an alien world. Dipping into 1st and 2nd Kings can feel like a maze, and it can leave us dazed. For this very reason, one of the big goals of this sermon series is to help you approach 1st Kings in a manner which breaks down the access barriers in a manner which allows the power and meaning of this biblical text to become transparent to us, understandable to contemporary readers. That's one of our big goals. Now, before we dive into the specific text of focus this morning, I want to pause briefly to discuss the overarching historical setting of 1st and 2nd Kings. At a macro level, what are these books about? In a nutshell, 1 and 2 Kings, which are really just one book in two parts, these books are concerned with Israel's attempt under the monarchy to live as God's people in the promised land. Earlier in the Old Testament, as some of you probably know, in the book of Exodus, God delivers His people out of a situation of slavery and bondage in Egypt. He delivers them out of that situation. And then they kind of roam around like nomads in the desert for about 40 years. And then after that, God says, now I want you to move into an area called Canaan. And the goal now, once we get into Canaan, is to settle. It's to pack up the tents and build houses, to build cities, to set up farms, to create create an economy and a society, but not just any old society. God has something new in mind, a new type of country a new type of culture, a new type of humanity. Let me put it like this. Social philosophers today generally agree that there are four crucial ingredients for a flourishing human society, at least four. One, healthy respect for the human person. Two, healthy respect for the human family. Three, a fair and effective system of law and governance. And four, economic systems that generate, distribute, and preserve wealth. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll see that all of those things are part of God's vision for Israel, all four of them. It's revolutionary in context, and it stands in sharp contrast with Egypt, Egypt with its system of exploitation, its pyramid economy where all the wealth flowed right to the top, Egypt with its disregard for justice and mercy, Egypt with its pharaohs men who thought that they should be served because they claimed to be gods. Well, none of that garbage is supposed to have a place in Israel. That's God's dream. Now, as the settlement happens, as the Israelites move into the land of Canaan, the organization is initially a little bit more localized, right? It's on the clan or tribe structure, but with time, the people say, we want a king, we want a king. And God himself is a little bit leery about this because kings can easily create more problems than they solve. So God is a little bit leery. Nonetheless, he does grant the desire of the people, but with certain stipulations. You have to go read Deuteronomy chapter 17 and you can read those stipulations. They say that boys will be boys and kings will be kings, but not in Israel. That's not how it's supposed to be in Israel at least according to God. The books of Kings chronicle this whole experiment. They begin with David, Israel's second king. They move through to his son Solomon and then all the way down the line, tracing the lineage of David over four or 500 years. I want you to try to keep a little bit of that in mind as we plunge in today into a few very interesting chapters from 1 Kings 2 and 3. You just heard them read. And as we explore this morning together the meaning and the ongoing significance of these two texts, we need to pay attention to at least two things, the contradiction and the confliction. Some of you might not think that's a word. It depends on how rigid you are. The contradiction and the confliction. You got that? I want you to keep your Bibles open because seeing God's Word helps you to hear it better. In chapter two, verse one, we meet Solomon. That's one of the easier names to pronounce in this text. Good job, Richard. Solomon has been summoned to the bedside of his dying father, King David. The old king has some advice to dispense. Now, by this point in the story, Solomon is the confirmed successor to David. He's the heir apparent. He's the Dauphin, he's the Prince of Wales, however you want to put it. There was a little bit of uncertainty about whether he was actually going to be the heir In chapter 1, it seemed like that might not actually come to pass. Chapter 1 deals with the succession issue, but when we get to chapter 2, the next question is this, the security issue, the security of the kingdom. With his dying breath, David wants to tie up some loose ends. He knows that in times of transition, it's prudent to be kind of cautious about things that could go wrong, right? So he wants to tie up some loose ends, so he summons young Solomon in, his replacement for a little chat, mano a mano. Now, we need to remember that David spent a lot of his life at war to build and establish his kingdom. You can read about that in the book of Samuel, right? He does not want the kingdom to fall apart. The unity of the realm is his dying priority. Let's go into the royal bedchamber and eavesdrop on this last conversation between father and son, 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the last convo with his old man. And David told Solomon this, keep the charge of your Lord walking in his ways and keeping his statutes and his commandments and his rules and his testimonies as it's all written down in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all that you do and you'll do well wherever you turn that the Lord may establish the word he spoke to me concerning my house saying if your sons pay close attention to their way, if they walk before me in faithfulness with their heart and their soul, you'll never lack a man for the throne." Even if that's rather general, that's pretty good sound spiritual advice from David. David basically looks at Solomon and he says, there is a God in Israel and it's not you. That's basically what he's saying. In Israel, the king's strength and authority are to operate within a framework of boundaries, and these parameters are set by God. You find them in the law of Moses. In a visionary sense, God's law, the law of Moses, that's a big part of how Israel is gonna be a different and better society and culture than Egypt. That's how it's gonna happen. God's law is the basis for making Israel a compelling alternative in a brutish world. And so, what David says here in these verses, verses three and four, is very commendable. It's the right answer. But it's not necessarily what David, the belief that David lives out of. Look what he says next. Turn your eyes to verse 5 through 9. This is David still speaking to Solomon. Moreover, you know what Joab the son of Zeru did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jather, whom he killed, avenging in a time of peace blood that was shed in a time of war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet? Act therefore according to your wisdom, my son." But let not his gray head go down to Sheol, which is death, in peace. But deal loyally with Barzillai, the Gileadite. Let his family be among those who eat at your table, for they showed me great loyalty. Oh, and then there's also with you Shimei the son of Gera the Benjaminite. He cursed me, a grievous curse, on the day when I went to Mahanaim. That's a tough word. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You know what you ought to do with him. Bring his gray head down to Sheol too. Ooh, there's a big contradiction here. Most everything that David utters at this point recoils against what he said to Solomon first in verses one, two, three, and four. These verses are like one giant caveat that negate everything he just said. It seems that David wants to sound good without being good. Let's unpack these disturbing exhortations. On the one hand, there's some kindnesses to be rewarded. That's in verse 7, right? David wants Solomon to take care of this friend of his called Barzillai. Barzillai was a man who helped the king out way back when in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Barzillai is the model citizen. Welcome him into the palace. Let him eat at your table. That's not so bad. But on the other side, there are some wrongs to be punished in an extrajudicial manner. In the first place, David issues a death warrant for a man called Shimei. Who's Shimei? Well, back in 2 Samuel 16, you meet Shimei, and he curses David. He doesn't support the king. He actually says some very nasty things to the king. But David does not respond in kind. It's one of David's big moments, a high moment. He actually promised, as he says here in verse 8, not to retaliate on Shimei. He promised in the name of God. But he didn't promise on behalf of his successor Solomon, did he? Seems David had his fingers crossed behind his back when he made that promise. We'll see who gets the last laugh. And then there's Joab. David tells Solomon to deal with him too. Who's Joab? Joab was one of David's most long-standing, loyal military commanders, right? David's asking Solomon to whack him. What's up with that? The justifications in verse 5. David says that Joab has unacceptable blood guilt on his hands. And because Joab is a big fixture of the house of David, David seems to suggest that there's some sort of guilt by association. His presence in our house tarnishes us. Hmm. Hmm. Hmm funny thing is that that blood guilt, that issue of guilt by association, never seemed to bother David before now. See, prior to this point, David was very content to let Joab do his thing and say, Joab, you're in God's hands. In fact, that's exactly what David said in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Truth be told, Joab was a useful person to David, useful guy to have around, useful kind of like a hitman is useful to have around for a mob boss. That's how he was useful. You see what I'm saying? Joab was great at creating layers of separation between the king and certain bits of dirty work. One scholar puts it like this, Joab built his career on having people killed for David's benefit, whether at the king's express command or not. Joab was very intuitive too, you see. Very clever. They're all very clever. Now, this is pretty disquieting stuff. David looks like a walking contradiction. In one instance, he says, be loyal and have allegiance to God and God's law. And then moments later, he gives all of these orders, these death warrants, which glaringly spurn God's law. Now, for some of you, maybe like me, as when I was a child, David was depicted as a paragon of faith, a hero before God. I mean, he got a lot of positive headlines in his life, right? David, you can see the, the newspaper. Young David kills Goliath. Young David defeats Israel's enemies, the Philistines, all these positive headlines. But you know what? David has a pretty dark side too, just like every human in the Bible. David's like a casserole made out of leftovers. There are some wonderful things in him, but there are also some nasty and, quite frankly, disgusting things in him. Let's, let's, Let's pause to probe into the heart of this this troubling contradiction, right? How do we make sense of David? What explains his cognitive dissonance? The is in the text. When you put the two main sections of what David says here to Solomon in chapter two, when you put them side by side, you notice a glaring disparity. The difference is in the details or the lack thereof, as we'll see. The first exhortation, the one that sounds really godly and upright, verses three and four, It's really general. It's not very specific. There's not much substance to it. It didn't have to be that way. David could have talked about Deuteronomy 17 to Solomon. There's a lot of very definite, concrete things about being a king in that chapter. David could have talked about that stuff, but he didn't. He didn't. When he talks about God's law, God's ways, he speaks in a very general and vague way, kind of formulaic almost it's as if David doesn't actually know God's ways all that well. But what he says second is anything but vague. When it comes to tying up those loose ends, David's very specific, isn't he? He talks very lucidly about these past offenses against him and his house. He speaks very concretely about the actions to be taken. And the writers of Kings want us to notice this. This contrast sheds light on David's internal contradiction. I don't think David's being insincere in this passage about his reverence for God. I don't, actually think, I don't think he's lying in verse three and four. That's too simplistic. If you look at the whole story of David, you'll see there's various moments in his life when he had a lot of zeal for the Lord. He had a lot of desire for the Lord. He had all the qualities of emotional sincerity with regard to his attitude towards God. But in the life of faith... According to the Bible, sincerity and sentiment are not enough. Did you get that? In the life of faith, sincerity and sentiment are not enough. Here's a proverb elsewhere in the Old Testament that says this desire without knowledge is not good. One translation puts it more bluntly ignorant zeal is worthless. I think this proverb helps us to better understand David's problem here. David wants his son to follow God and he tells him to do that, but he does not actually know what following God entails. Or at least he doesn't know it half as well as he should. He doesn't know what it means in concrete everyday terms. What David does know, however, is the art of political maneuvering and calculating and manhandling. He's very well schooled in the ways of Machiavelli. I think that's probably what David dreamed about when he went to church, these types of things. He's clearly thought about this a lot. He's thought about it a lot more than he's thought about the ways of God. In the end, this means that David's faith, even if it's super-duper emotionally sincere, is compromised. It ends up being formal and vacuous or empty. Or to put it another way, David's faith is so nice and general that it doesn't actually matter all that much. And the ugly result of this state of affairs, to echo one commentator, is this. David trusts in God in general, but not in certain specific situations. When it comes to the welfare of his kingdom, he trusts himself. And that means that even while David loves God at some level, he's destined to represent God very poorly in the way he lives and conducts his life. I couldn't help but think of the Godfather as I studied this passage. If you've seen the films, you'll know that Michael Corleone, the head of the family, is from one angle a very devout and religious man. He goes to mass at his Catholic church, he prays, he even gives money to the poor. But tomorrow, he adds to the pollution of the world through graft, through money laundering, and through murder. That's kind of how David operates here. He ends up conjuring up depraved thoughts that spawn into heinous acts, all the while professing love and loyalty to God. The book of Kings is written not to defend the status quo, but to expose it and to condemn it. God ain't happy. I want you to see that. I want you to get that. What we witness here in David, it still happens. It happens all the time. It happens in us. It happens in me. Perhaps in less visible ways, but none of this is trivial to God. A.W. Tozer, a Christian pastor, once quipped, Christians don't tell lies, they just go to church and sing them. In other words, like David, we can be filled with the right sentiments and sincere emotions. We can say the right things, but yet we live and behave and operate and dream and plan in ways that are rather godless. We have a general faith, a faith that reduces down to sincerity and sentiment. And so, our commitment to God doesn't really carry much luggage. It's meaningless. It comes down to this God doesn't just want our sincerity or our mere sentiments. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know His ways, and He wants us to walk in them. He wants us to be people who pray like Moses, not like David. Moses, back in chapter, Exodus chapter 33, 13. This is what He prayed, one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible. This is what Moses prayed Lord, teach me your ways that I might know you and continue to find favor with you. That's what Moses prayed. That's not a prayer to know God in general. That's not formal religion. That's a prayer which wants God in every area of our life, God's goodness in all of us, all aspects of our existence. In part, 1 Kings is reminding us that if that's not our desire in prayer, if we don't pray like Moses, then we're at risk. We could end up like David. That's a scary thought. How do we avoid that pitfall practically? The answer is pretty simple. Do what David didn't do. Let David be a negative example. Sometimes you can learn wonderful lessons from things not done well. Get to know God's ways. It's not secret, it's in the Bible, it's in English. It's sitting there like a well of water, drink it. Move beyond a form of faith that reduces down to just sincere feelings. Move into the sincere and proactive pursuit of God's ways. Make that the pulse of your spirituality. Now, this point, the point that I'm making right here, the point that Kings is made, is actually not a strange and unusual point. Genuine passion is something, we know this, genuine passion is something that involves more than just sincere interest and right sentiment. It also involves knowledge. I mean, if, if you wanted to get healthy, you're, really, you know, you're, you're very sincere about wanting to get healthy, but you didn't do any research into dieting or exercise or vitamins or whatever, you know, you're kidding yourself. You don't really want to get healthy. If you want to help the poor, but you don't take any time to understand their issues, to learn about their vulnerabilities, to inquire about how to effectively help re stabilize human beings who've been broken, if you don't take any time to do that, then can you really say you actually care about the poor? It's just a sentiment, it's meaningless. That insight's got to be imported into the center of our spirituality. In other words, it's not just enough to encounter the reality of God. We have to relentlessly pursue the ways of God, relentlessly pursue the ways of God. If we're not familiar with God's ways, we can't mirror them in the world. I mean, if you don't know someone's character, if you don't know how they tick, how can you possibly represent them in the world accurately? This is hugely relevant to Christian life. God doesn't want Facebook friends. He wants friends who know him. He wants men and women and children who can accurately and creatively and consistently represent him in the world, unlike David. That's the kind of faith God's after. Is it a sincere faith? You bet. But it's also an informed faith. Is that the kind of faith we're after? Let's move on now to the confliction. The confliction. This is in chapter 3. What we discover here is that David's contradiction leads to Solomon's confliction. <coughs> Solomon is not slow to understand his father's request. The rest of chapter 2, which was not read out loud today, makes that abundantly clear. Chapter 2, verse 12 says this. Solomon acted quickly to firmly establish his rule. And that's an understatement. Like father, like son, as we'll see. You'll notice that David's, David was always urging Solomon to use your wisdom execute these plans and stabilize the kingdom, right? Just like King David, Solomon seems to assume that obedience to God's law has to be accompanied by ruthless politics. Now, to understand the purpose of chapter 2 and 3 together, we need to see that they're constructed to draw our attention to the theme of wisdom. That word appears often throughout these two books. The word in Hebrew is hakmah. Say that. Hakmah. It just means wisdom. Right? It's used on multiple occasions, but it's not always used in the same way. In fact, there's a conflict between two types of wisdom here. So let's explore this briefly. To begin with, there's the wisdom that David gives Solomon, the wisdom that's represented in everything David says. This wisdom basically entails finding a suitable occasion for Solomon to execute all of David's murderous orders. And Solomon's quick to adopt it. That's what the second half of chapter two depicts. Solomon's very clever in a rather sinister way. This is a chilling chapter. There's a lot of blood. First off, Joab, he gets condemned. The official reason is because of his association with one of Solomon's brothers who tried to steal the throne. That's the official reason, but in the context of what actually happens, it's a very dubious charge. Now when Joab gets word that his head is slated to roll, He runs to the sanctuary, and he grabs the altar and pleads for mercy. He's hoping that Solomon will be less savage than he has been in his own past. But guess what? Solomon sends his soldier in there, and they strike him down while he's holding the altar. It's worth noting that the law of God, which Solomon is supposed to be upholding, explicitly forbids murdering someone by the altar of God, Exodus 21. Solomon's more than willing to ignore the letter of God's law when it suits him. After Joab, Solomon turns to that other fellow called Shimei. A trap is set. Shimei is ordered to build a house and stay in Jerusalem. It's a way of neutralizing someone who's a threat. You're under house arrest. And Solomon tells Shimei that if he leaves, if he crosses the Kidron Valley, that's the way it's put. The wording's very careful in 2, chapter 2, verse 37. If you cross the Kidron Valley... On the eastern side of Jerusalem, you're going to be slain. So stay put. Well, Shimei stays put for a few years, but then some unexpected business calls him out of town. It's a bit of an emergency. He calls him away to a place called Gath. Of course, Solomon finds out because he's got people watching the house. The interesting thing, though, is that Gath is west of Jerusalem. That means that Shimei did not technically cross the Kidron Valley, and that is technically what Solomon said to him. The text makes no mention of the Kidron Valley here. This is a deafening silence. Solomon's indifferent. Shimei gets a bullet to the back of the head, just like Joab. All of these harrowing events end with this statement. The kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. What happened here? I want you to see, this is a different way of reading the Bible and some of you may have picked up along the way. What basically happened in chapter 2 is not unlike the predatory night of long knives. From June 30th to July 2nd, 1934, the Nazi regime solidified its power, secured its rule by exterminating more than 85 prominent political opponents. The people in that group were struck down in assassinations, extrajudicial executions. It was a purge. But it was spun as a necessary uh, protectionist measure against a coup. That's how it was spun. That's what happens here in chapter 2. That's David's wisdom in action. Solomon is as shrewd as a serpent, but you better believe he's not as innocent as a dove. The scandalous, interesting thing about all of this is that Solomon attempts to credit God for the kingdom's establishment along the way. In verse 44, he says this. Right as he's about to to have Shimei taken out, this is what Solomon says. Now the Lord will repay you for your wrongdoing. Whoa! Why are you dragging God into this? You have to be discerning with verses like this, right? This is Solomon's propaganda to himself. This is not the truth according to the book of Kings. In the U.S., when you buy chicken breasts, the package often says, no hormones added. And if that sticker's on the package, you pay more for it. But here's the thing. Hormones are totally illegal in chicken in the U.S., right? So it's a ridiculous label. It's like, saying, it's like a sticker on a jug of milk that says, no vodka added. It's meaningless, right? So, too, with Solomon's efforts to dignify his bloody actions by appealing to God. Meaningless. Don't drink that Kool-Aid. The writers of Kings don't drink it. They know that God has nothing to do with all of this. Nothing to do with the type of wisdom that's running the show here. The wisdom in chapter 2 can be called wisdom from below. That's what Solomon's using. That's what he gets from David. It's a wisdom that basically consists of cutthroat pragmatism. It's unenlightened. It's self-serving. It's goal is self-aggrandizement. It should remind you of Francis Underwood. If you watch House of Cards, that's how Solomon's acting. These chapters are written to name and critique that type of wisdom. This is what one commentator says on First Kings. 1 Kings as a book is far from unambiguous in its assessment of Solomon's actions immediately after he ascends the throne. There is no endorsement by Kings or by God of all of this. In fact, Solomon is starting to look like a Pharaoh, he's starting to act like a tyrant. And the whole point of Israel is to be different and better than that. Israel is to be the place where kings aren't just kings. And so the Lord intervenes. Because there's another form of wisdom that Solomon can take. It's wisdom from above. And that's what chapter 3 talks about. So let's turn to that in closing. In chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 and 9, we read about Solomon having a vision. He's visited by God. And the Lord says, ask something of me, Solomon, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, he's very smart. He says, Lord, you've made, you've made me the king in place of my father, but I'm only a little child, and I don't know how to carry out my duties. So give me a discerning heart that I might govern your, your people, right, and discern between right and wrong. For who can govern these people of yours? Just as we're wondering if God's going to enter into this abysmal state of affairs, he does, and he brings a gift. And Solomon's response is pleasantly unexpected. He actually says, Lord, give me wisdom. And clearly, this is a different type of wisdom from what he's been using before. He's not asking for the same thing. He's asking for something different. How are we to understand wisdom from above? What's the difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below, the type of wisdom that David passed on to Solomon? The clue is in verse 7 and 8. There's two things, at least, that we can take out of this. First off... Wisdom from above does not begin with the assertion of power, but rather with the assertion of neediness. It involves seeing yourself like a child, just like Solomon does. That's what he says in verse 7. One great Anglican preacher, George Whitfield, put it like this. Wisdom from above, being a child, it means to be acutely aware of your limitations, of your weaknesses. That's how children are. They invite help. They depend on others. They know that they need their hand to be held when they cross the street most of the time. And when we look at children, we see them, we know they need to grow and develop. These are the types of qualities at the center of wisdom from above. It begins by knowing that we need guidance from God. We look at the world, we look at ourselves, and we encounter all all types of confusion, right? We lack understanding, our perspective, our insight, they're all limited, but not with God. He made it all. He knows how it works and he knows how it should work. Wisdom from above gets that. It says, Lord, teach me what I need to know so that I can negotiate life well and in a way that makes this world a better instead of a worse place. Wisdom from above renounces self-reliance. It epitomizes Proverbs 3, chapter 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's the beginning of wisdom from above. Now, this may sound childish to some of you, but according to the Bible, these are the words of a wise adult. The second thing about wisdom from above, verse eight, is is in Solomon's words. He says, your servant, help your servant who's ruling your people. The king recognizes that everything he has, the kingdom, is not his. And his people, they aren't his either. Up to this point, Solomon, just like David, has treated people like palms, like objects. He's disposed of them as he pleased. That's what kings often do, past and present. Wisdom from above, dumps that attitude. It has no place for it. It recognizes that everything that we have, our possessions, our capacity, our relationships, they all belong to God in the first and the last. That little conviction, that little insight, it has vast implications. It has the potential to totally reconfigure the way Solomon rules as a king and has the ability to totally reconfigure what, the way we do life. That's what the book of James is talking about when it speaks about wisdom from above. In James chapter 3, there's another discussion of this higher wisdom. And this is what James says. Listen up. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. It's peace-loving. It's considerate. It's submissive. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and it's sincere. All of that stands in sharp, sharp opposition to everything that we saw in David and young Solomon. It's very different from the wisdom David gets from his father. What does this wisdom from above look like in action? Will Solomon take it to heart in the long term? These are the big questions that linger at the end of these chapters. And in their answer rests the fate of the kingdom. You'll have to come back next week to find out what happens. For now, the verdict's out. But it's not just out for Solomon. It's also out for you and me. You see, the wisdom that God is offering Solomon here is wisdom that he wants for all of his people, all of us. Solomon's desperate need for wisdom and all the carnage and wreckage in his life, that's a mirror for us. We all have influence. We all have power to wield different forms and degrees. What type of wisdom is going to govern that? Wisdom from below or wisdom from above? There's a conflict here. Which wisdom will we embrace? That's the big question that's flying in our face at this moment. Let's hope it's the latter. In the New Testament, James says, if you need wisdom from above, pray for it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him or her ask God who gives generously. We are to pray for this wisdom. Do you pray for this wisdom? When's the last time you prayed for it? To ask God to give you wisdom from above, God's wisdom. If you ask, it will be given. And not just in an abstract way, not just packages, principles and precepts, but for us it comes in the form of a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says he is the power and he is the wisdom of God. In other words, he is the full and perfect expression of the wisdom from above, the total opposite of David and Solomon. Jesus is the one who always depended on God like a little child. Always depended on God. Lived in total reliance. Knew all of God's ways. And you know what? Jesus is also the one who didn't bulldoze his enemies. He didn't bulldoze other people in order to advance his kingdom. In fact, he laid down his life for his enemies so that they might become his friends. That's how he built his kingdom. That's how he governs his kingdom. Speaking of Jesus, he's right here in the book of Kings. You may have missed him, but he's here. At this point, he's still in David's groin. Some of you didn't get that. He's there. Jesus is a descendant of David and Solomon. This is the line that he comes out of in human terms. How'd that come to pass? How did Jesus come out of this line? Let me tell you. Because God does not operate the way that David and Solomon do. God doesn't callously obliterate his enemies. And there's... Certainly enough case in these two chapters to suggest that David and Solomon, the way they operate, that's clashing with God. They don't have the same values. But God does not obliterate them like they did to their enemies. God does not do that. He shows mercy so that he can show even more mercy in the long term when Jesus Christ arrives. That's how wisdom from above really works. Will we embrace it? Again, it's not about receiving abstract ideas and information. It's about clinging a person. Wisdom from above now has a face. It's the face of Jesus Christ. Cling to him. Let him use you. Let him use me in his steadfast quest to make right everything that's skewed and warped and ugly in this world and also inside of ourselves. That's what King Jesus, the wisdom of God, is here to do. May we receive it.